Uh, just as I turn to the word of the Lord, it is a great joy and privilege for me to do so here with you, dear souls. Got your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them to Mark's gospel in chapter 7. My aim today, let me just tell you what I hope for today. We're going to meet a man in desperate need of the grace of the gospel, the the grace of the Lord Jesus. And my goal today is, if I may borrow from one of the Puritans of old, that each of us would leave this place with a fuller sight of God. My hope is that we will see this man, we will see his interactions with Jesus, or perhaps better, Jesus' interaction with him, and we will leave this place with a fuller sight of the grandeur and the greatness and the mercies of the Lord Jesus. I'll bet you can pick up on why I say that as I read the text from Mark's Gospel 7, verse 31 and following. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his finger into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. Our Father, now we turn to your word and ask your every blessing on it. We'd love to hear your word. We love to meditate and think deeply on your word. As we come to this passage, we pray, our great triune God, that you'd pour out your spirit on us. We may see and understand this text to the blessing of our own soul. We ask this for Jesus' sake and for our good. Amen. Central teaching of this uh, passage is uh, clearly derived from the actual encounter that we see Jesus have with this man that comes in verses 33 and 34. Lots of other details about the passage, but the, the central piece, the fulcrum, if you will, of this passage, the main thing comes from those verses, Jesus' actual interactions with this man. And you'll notice as we read through there, maybe you noticed, that there are actually six things that Jesus does. That's going to be the structure of uh, our uh, passage this morning. I mentioned to John to yesterday in passing that um, I've, I've got a six-point sermon this morning, and he said, just don't tell them that at the beginning. Goes, I've got a six-point sermon this morning, uh, but I promise they'll not each be, uh, they'll not each be that long. <laughs> um, six things that Jesus does. Mark them. One, he took the man aside to a private place. That's number one. Number two, he put his fingers in the ear of the man. Number three, he spit. Number four, he touched the man's tongue. Number five, he sighed deeply. 
as he looked heavenward. And number six, he spoke. So those are the six things that uh, we want to learn from this morning. May our hearts be receptive to the preaching of the gospel. First then, Jesus took this man aside. We need to park it here for a few minutes and and dive in a little bit. We don't need to go too deep, but we need to have a little bit of of broader context of all of this. Um, There's a number of things in this passage that uh, will raise our eyebrows. It's a little strange, don't you think? It's a little strange. Let's just be honest with it. When we read the text, it's it's a little weird that uh, Jesus sticks his fingers in a man's ears, uh, that he spits and touches the man's tongue. These are a little bit strange to us. We hear them in our Western modern culture, and we say, uh, you know, ooh, right? And and don't we don't like that? That that's weird to us. For for most of us, that's that's weird to me. Perhaps I'll put it that way. I don't want to speak for anyone else. Um, that Christ would. Uh, uh, do these these things, but perhaps the the most surprising thing out of all fly, flies right under the radar, and that is this: it seems strange to us that Christ would ignore the opportunity that's right before him to display the power and the greatness and the majesty of the living God for all the eyes to see. Did you notice that at the beginning of the text? as it describes some of the geography and where he is and so on, that there is a a crowd with him. There's a large crowd with him. I might expect Jesus to seize upon that opportunity and, and to perform this powerful, miraculous sign of a healing in front of them all. If if I'm there, I'm one of the disciples, and I want to see the Lord Jesus' glory magnified among the nations, my instinct is to say, do it, Lord, and do it so all these people see, and perhaps many will fall before you in worship. That's what I would expect. So among the strange, unexpected things about this passage is, right off the top, that whatever Jesus is about to do, he's going to go do it in private. Um, one of the things that strikes us about the gospel, about all four gospels, you understand, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, about those four gospels, when the life and the ministry of Jesus is traced, one of the things that strikes us is how often it is that it's other people who bring somebody else, most often, not most often, quite often, an afflicted person, a person suffering with some kind of crisis, maybe a crisis of faith, crisis of of, of their own sense of self, maybe an illness, a sickness. It's frequent that it is somebody else that brings such a needy one to Jesus, and how often it is that Jesus receives them. And that's because there's this growing sense. Don't, don't miss that in your reading of the life of Christ and the, your reading of the stories of the gospel. There's this growing sense as Jesus makes his way closer and closer and closer, ultimately to Jerusalem, ultimately to the cross. There's this growing sense with each step of, of anticipation, of, of expectations that, that he can and he will make things 
right. And so people frequently bring the needy ones to Jesus. We even see a group of people at a certain point tear through the roof and lower a needy one right in front of Jesus in the temple because they can't get to him other ways. There's this growing sense of anticipation, of expectation of the great things of Jesus. And in this case, it's a little hard to know some of the background, but it's evident that some of the people, many of the people of the Decapolis, this collection of 10 smaller communities, towns, and cities known together as the Decapolis, have brought this man. And it seems evident that they have brought him out of compassion. Again, we don't know all the details. Perhaps is this a childhood friend? Is this somebody they've known for a long time? It's been deaf and mute for a very long time. They seem to love this man. They seem to have an affection for him. They come begging. That's the language. You see that in your Bible? That they have come and they have begged the Lord Jesus. Don't don't miss these little details in the Scripture. They have come and they have begged the Lord Jesus for his healing, believing that he can. Drill into that just a little bit, uh, this word for, for begging Jesus. It, it, it comes from, from two words that get put together, and it's a, it's a well-known Greek word for those that study the Bible in that kind of detail. It's the word, what's called paraclete or parakaleo. It's a word often used as the name of the Holy Spirit. It means to, to uh, in, in its most basic form, it means to, in its most basic form, simply come alongside, to be called alongside. That's why the Holy Spirit is called the, the paraclete. That, that's now in, in, in verb form. It's, they're, they're coming to the Lord Jesus. They're begging the Lord Jesus. They're pouring out their, their own um, prayers, really, to Jesus. Come to this man. Come heal this man. That's what it means when it says he's, they are begging him. To call the Lord Jesus, bringing this man up to Jesus, the great and able physician, they are saying, come to this man's side, come near to him, come be his aid, come be his, his help to him. They are commending the man to the care of the great caregiver. Or if you like, they are straining towards Jesus Christ on behalf of their friend, compelling Jesus to help and to answer. It, I, I must confess that to my own uh, shame, if that's not overstating it, I, I don't often, I don't often pray like this. This man has got faithful friends, and they're coming to Jesus, and they're praying this way, if you will. I, I find myself n- not like that often, praying as though my own well-being is at stake. Uh, who among us prays fervently like that on behalf of, of others? And so it was with this man. They come to Jesus, this poor man. There is social stigma attached to this of being unable to hear or unable to speak. Uh, culture has come a long way in these thousands of years. And in those days, any kind of, of, um, of malformity uh, would, have, would have carried with it a, a tremendous sort of, uh, of, of stigma. And this man can't, he's unable to speak. He's unable to hear. 
to say nothing of the physical toll it's taking on him, it's, it's a pretty radical situation that we bump up against here in Mark 7. And so Jesus surprises us when he takes the man away from the crowd privately. So to our question, why that? That's surprising. Why that? Well, it's because Jesus is in the land of the Gentiles, this area, the Decapolis, far side of the Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. It's Gentile land. These people have a particular view of who Jesus is that's vastly different than the way the Jews think about who Jesus is. He's over here with this group of people, the far side of the sea. What they know about Jesus is quite simple. They have, if you will, a simple faith. In Christ, they see the chance to get healed. There's a simplicity in their faith here. But Jesus takes this man away before he heals him, away from the crowds in a surprising move, probably for at least two reasons. Number one, he wants the deaf and mute man to center his attention. He wants this man to center his attention on the one who is about to heal him and not on the large crowds. There's a certain crowd dynamic in this case that Jesus simply wants to avoid. He, he wants this man to, to have his, his entire center and focus, not to feel like, like, he's be, uh, like the crowds are, are, are allowing this man to be the focus. Jesus doesn't want that. It's not good for the man. So Jesus takes the man privately away from the crowds so that the focus of this man will be on the one who has come to heal him. And the second is because uh, Jesus' point with the miracles is never to promote the miracles themselves, but rather the meaning and the significance of the miracles. Every miracle was meant to point to some spiritual reality. There's always some Old Testament uh, uh, anchor or, 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 or biblical uh, significance to, to what is portrayed in a miracle. And they're all, all the miracles are always meant to point to some greater, deeper spiritual reality. This man's need is much deeper than he even realizes, a much deeper reality. So he, he, he takes him away in private to achieve these wondrous things unhindered by a, a sign-crazed world. There are some crazy people in the crowds. Um, uh, I, was in, I was in York yesterday. Crazy people. I saw some things there that were uh, quite surprising. Um, the shambles, is it? A lovely place. We loved every minute. I think we walked every square inch of the place. Um, and we saw some strange things. Uh, people dressed up like Vikings. Um, uh, people dressed up like all kinds of other things. And uh, they were all very delightful. Um, but, but crowds can create this kind of interesting dynamic, right? Um, Jesus wants this man to avoid all of that, knowing that if something incredible happens, 
all focus will be on that man. There was a man yesterday in one area of the shambles that was perform, uh, performing uh, magic tricks, and all the crowd is just watching this man for, for the magic that he was to perform. And, and there's hundreds of people around watching. Jesus is going to help this man avoid being the focus of all of that. So he pulls this man aside because he wants the man and he wants his disciples to understand Yes, this is a great miracle. It's gracious to this man, but it's not about the miracle. And it's not even about the man. It's about the miracle maker. That would be the Lord Jesus. So what does he do when he gets this man away from the crowd? That's our second thing much more quickly. Um, He puts his fingers into the man's ears. You see that in verse 33. Now, does that seem strange to you? Um, At first glance, I'm, I'm sure it does, but we go a bit deeper. The man can't hear. The man can't speak effectively enough to communicate anything in a helpful manner. And he didn't need to. Often it seems that we uh, think it is our responsibility perhaps to convince God uh, of our needs and of our wants to compel God to convince him uh, that I really am, uh, this, this issue I'm dealing with really is worth your attention. Let me give you many words. It's good for us to pray specifically and and boldly, but the answer from God does not depend on the eloquence of our prayer. Just like our salvation does not depend on on the depth of our faith, but on Christ's faithfulness alone. And here's this man. He doesn't even need to tell Jesus what's wrong. And even if he wanted to tell Jesus what's wrong, he didn't have the opportunity because of of his ailments. And so, Jesus, here is the loving compassion of our Lord. The Lord Jesus condescends to the man in a way that it becomes unmistakable what he's about to do. He can't hear, he can't speak, But he could see, this man can see. One wonders if Jesus made certain certain to, to lock eyes with this man as he reached his holy fingers to touch this man's head when my kids were uh, were younger. If I had something important to say to them, I, I would gently grab their little shoulders and turn them towards me or perhaps put my hands or on their on their on their jawline here on their face and and make sure they're they're looking at me make sure they turn to me in, in this assuring manner that's what Jesus does this man can't see he can't speak he can't say the things he wants to say but he can surely see and so Jesus would put his hand on his head and turn towards him and make sure the man turns towards Jesus. Your deliverance is here. Make no mistake about it. It is I who am your healer. You see how Jesus goes to the man and pulls him in. He is saying to him this, this way of yours, of, of great and, and confusing uh, affliction. I, I'm certain you would not have chosen this but I will use it for eternal purposes. There's a lesson. I don't know any of you. I don't know what your 
life is like. I don't know how God's providence has or is playing out in any of you. But perhaps for some of you, there is some measure of affliction, some measure of some kind of affliction. And you would not have chosen it. But your healer and your redeemer would likewise put his hands upon your shoulders and say, look, look towards me. Look, look at me. Jesus would even pray, uh, 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 tell us about a church in uh, Smyrna, one of the churches of what is called Asia Minor, first portions of the book of Revelation. He would say to the church at Smyrna, I, I know what it's like for you. Your, your life is one of, of poverty and persecution and, and prison, even death itself, and you wouldn't have chosen this life of affliction, but I have chosen it for you. It is what I have for you. It doesn't mean that my plans for you have been derailed doesn't mean I have not blessed you. And instead it means that you will learn in this life what many don't. And that is the sweet amen of peace that attends the afflicted servants of the cross. There's some of that here with this man in Mark 7. He can't hear a thing. He can't speak. He can't say the things he wants to say to plead his case or even to say thank you, not yet. But Jesus knows his every thought. He puts his fingers into the ears of the man to say, I am here and I am willing. I am able. Your life is in my hands. Third and fourth, Jesus spits and he touches his tongue. Same idea, similar thing, nonverbal uh, works of grace here. Jesus communicating in very human terms, very human way, though nonverbal just yet, that he alone is sovereign over whatever it is that afflicts the servant, that the Lord Jesus alone is sovereign, that he is good in whatever may afflict the sinner. Just as with the touch of the ears, so here the touching of this man's tongue is meant to demonstrate in unforgettable fashion and an indisputable fashion that it is he who is called the Lord of glory, that he is the one who is the great physician and healer. It is he alone who is able to restore and to renew whatever it is that has been undone. I wonder if there's any in this sanctuary who sense that perhaps their sin has undone them, perhaps made them unworthy of the mercy of the Lord Jesus. We often sing Jesus ready stands to save us, full of pity joined with power. That's the bubble over this man's head. That Jesus is ready, standing to save you. The lesson he's learning with amazement. Because consider this, for the first time maybe in all his life, this man can hear because of his interaction with the Lord of glory. For the first time, he can hear the first words that this man hears were the words of the Lord Jesus. Be healed. Fifth. 
He sighed deeply for the man as he looked heavenward. He took him aside privately, put his fingers in the man's ear. He spit into his own fingers. He touched the man's tongue. And fifth, he he sighed deeply for the man as he looked heavenward. Verse 34, and looking up to heaven, he, this is referring to Jesus, sighed. Here's a peeling back of the curtain, so to speak. We get a peek into the depths of our Lord's soul. He knew where his strength and where his power came from, didn't he? He's clearly exhausted, humanly speaking. He is seeking rest. And in that moment, when the opportunity is before him to display the greatness of God, even in private, he immediately looks heavenward. Whence cometh his help? There's a lesson here. There's a lesson. Because there is something so deeply convicting about the life of our Lord, many things, but in this case it reveals his instinct, which is often contrary to to our instinct. Reveals our selfish and arrogant ways because we we don't often default to this position of, of looking heavenward for our help. Most of the people that I know have an instinct to solve problems. We want to be problem solvers. There's a crisis. Let me run to the middle of it and solve the problem. The Lord Jesus, here's a crisis. This man's affliction is before him. His instinct is to look heavenward. And he sighs deeply for this man. We need this kind of renewing vision, this heavenward vision, a Godward life that our Lord and our Redeemer displayed for us at this moment in the Decapolis. Most often when my faith dissolves or when I am swamped by the rolling seas, it's when I no longer look heavenward nor sigh in satisfaction. This man, or uh, Jesus, when he sighs having looked heavenward, it's not a sigh of frustration. I've got like a hundred kids in my house. And um, many, many times I'm woken up in the night when they were little for the 50th time for whatever reason it may be, right? They want water again. And you sigh. It's three in the morning and you've clipped your toe on the couch and you, you're frustrated. This is not the kind of sigh from Jesus. He's not frustrated with this man. He sighs in deep satisfaction in comforting satisfaction on behalf of this man. And that's not often the way it is with me. 
probably with some of you, when my faith is dissolving or I am swamped, it's because I'm no longer looking heavenwards, no longer because I'm finding a deep kind of satisfaction in the personal Lord. Here's a text to remind you of that. Psalm 73, if you want to turn there, I'll read it very briefly. If you don't want to turn there, it's okay. Just listen. Psalm 73. Truly God is Israel. Listen to this man who loses his way. He loses his sight. He's not looking heavenward in time of crisis when the sea billows roll. But instead he goes elsewhere. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That's meant to be a compliment. They have everything they need. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. They have so much abundance. Everything is great for them. Even their eyes are swelling. Their hearts are overflowing with follies. follies. They scoff. They speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts. All is in vain. Verse 13, I've kept my heart clean. I've washed my hands and innocent, but everything's in vain. All day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning because I've tried to do what is right. But then I thought how to understand this, and it seemed a wearisome task. Then I went into the sanctuary of God. What, what happens here is he's, he's now looking heavenward. The posture of our Lord in this difficult crisis. He's looking heavenward in the sanctuary of God. It's the startling sense of a humble reliance on the sovereign grace of our Lord. He sighs deeply in satisfaction and he looks heavenward. Here's a question for you. Is that your instinct? Are you good at looking heavenward for the things of this life? And then sixth and finally, before we turn to the Lord's Supper, he spoke. God has spoken. That's why I said maybe the first words this man heard or maybe ever were from the lips of Jesus having spoken. Be opened. He spoke, and all things came to be. For this man, he gave him a a tongue now meant for praise and not for cursing. On his way to see Jesus that day, perhaps better on his way from seeing Jesus in private, his refrain is, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. My great Redeemer's praise. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your lucid tongues employ, ye blind, behold your savers come and leap, ye lame for joy. Isn't that the glory of the gospel in this man? We see ourselves deaf, unable to hear the gospel until Jesus gives us new ears, until he moves towards us runs towards us and pulls us in mute, living a praiseless and self-assured gray 
life. But Jesus comes. His Holy Spirit comes and revives dead things. Gives them new ears to hear the voice of the Master. Understanding and embracing the Gospel. He loosens our lips that we might speak forth the praise of God. The praise of become the children of God. One of the best things about preaching is hearing all the little voices of little children, the noises of the kingdom, as I call them, in the sanctuary. I love it. And it reminds us, reminds us that like children, we come crying out to our Heavenly Father, childlike. That's the story. That's the glory of the gospel, isn't it? That's why we find ourselves in hearty agreement. It's a covenantal Unified voice with all the scriptures. Verse 37, he does all things well. He does all things well. The child of God has been made new because he has been found out. He does all things well. By grace, he has found you out, drawn you in, given to you, new eyes that you may have this fuller sight of the living God uttering from your soul of those words that echo through all eternity. He does all things well. This is surely cause for us to rise and sing and bless His name. Let me pray. Our Father, how we thank You for our short time in this meaningful passage. We would love to plumb the depths of this text and see its many nuances. We thank You for Your loving kindness towards us, that You have moved towards us and put Your gracious hands on us to draw us towards You. That we may have a heavenward orientation. Oh, Lord, how we pray you would bless the preaching of your word to our souls. Overcome the folly of your servant, oh, Lord, that your word may be pure as it is heard and read. How we thank you for your tender mercy. How we thank you that you do all things well. Help us to worship you well. We commit all this into your care. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.